this week on the Marathon of History podcast. Canadian author and historian Mark Sulke joins me to talk about Canadian armor in the Second World War. Mark is the author of 14 books on Canada in the Second World War, as well as volumes on the Spanish Civil War, the War of 1812, and several mystery books. Please enjoy this podcast with Mark Sulke, and I want to thank Grey Roots Museum and Archives and Own Sound for coming on board to sponsor this podcast. Mark will be joining me in November for a very special presentation on the Sicilian and Italian campaign of 1943-1944 at Grey Roots. Mark will be appearing live from Victoria, BC, and will be available to answer questions to anybody in the audience. So again, thank you very much. Enjoy this podcast with Mark Sulke, and please consider coming out in November to Grey Roots Museum and Archives and have a chance to ask Mark your World War II questions live. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, joining me here. I'm Matt Johnson from Marathon of History, and today we have uh, something we've not done before. I have a I have a co-host, and uh, I'd like to introduce Stephanie McMullen from Grey Roots Museum and Archives. Uh, Stephanie is the uh, community historian in Grey Roots and contributed to Marathon of History magazine. So thank you for coming, Stephanie. Thanks for inviting me. All right, and we have somebody who needs no introduction to the uh, World War II fans in Canada. We have Mark Zolke. Uh, Mark, 14 books on World War II? Yeah. <laughs> and, and counting? <laughs> and counting, and counting, yes. And and you have a War of 1812 book too, don't you? Yes, and uh, one on World War One called Brave Battalion, which followed the Canadian Scottish Regiment, 16th oh. Battalion, okay. through World War One. Another one called The Gallant Cause on Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. My, my first my first military history book so uh mark's here today to talk to us about tanks and uh <laughs> everybody loves tanks i know as a kid i had many models spent all my money on tank models so mark when we talk about tanks um you know we think back to the first world war 1916 things weren't going well uh tanks were sort of a new technology then mm-hmm. what happened what happened to canada from that point you know till world war ii uh, how, what happened to our armored forces sort of in that time period? It's a long, sad story. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we finished World War I. Everyone came out of World War I with an appreciation that, that tanks were a bit of a battlefield changer. Um, you know, very dramatic. Uh, the last hundred days, we see the tanks playing a huge role in in moving offensive actions forward. War comes to an end. Everyone comes home. It's the Great War, the war to end all wars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And our Canadian government kind of took that almost literally. And um, you see very little investment into armored core. Uh, development. Um, everyone appreciates and understands that the next war, if there's going to be a war, that there's going to be tanks and that right. they're going to play a, a, an essential role. But um, in such a, in what is the typical story that we've seen over and over and over again in Canada, um, you have a government that does is, does not want to invest in in tanks because they're expensive. And they remain expensive today, and nobody wants to invest in them. <laughs> and so, you know, you have um, basically when World War II comes around, we don't have any tanks. Zip. <laughs> um, we have a small armored corps that has been struggling to try and understand and learn um, tank tactics 
in the absence of actually having tanks at various points they're even using you know the horses and wagons to sort of simulate tanks <laughs> and, <laughs> and going around and they get a few trainer tanks that they for old world war one um once that they bought from the united states that they use a little bit but they have nothing that, that's going to put them in the field when the war comes and um what they do have we have a quite a solid cavalry corps well equipped well organized and ready to fight the war that, well, that was never going to be fought again <laughs> because the day of cavalry was gone yet here we are we're nurturing that um and actually envisioning some some role for them and there's there is no role so so that's that's kind of where it was at uh in 1939 and then everyone says whoops we gotta scramble <laughs> um they didn't have there weren't many people um like the actual personnel uh so there was a group of officers who had been struggling with this whole thing of you know what's armor going to look like in a, in a canadian army context in a, in a war um 1939 comes they realize they've got to get serious 1940 comes especially this summer of 1940 may 1940 when the germans blitzkrieg um through france and holland and belgium uh suddenly everyone's seeing what tanks can do um they saw it to some degree in poland but you know, really, actually, the Germans didn't have a you know. Although they blitzkrieg through Poland, the, the tanks they were utilizing were were pretty poor. You know, Mark IIs and and things like that, largely. Uh, some of them with twenty millimeter guns and things like that. So they were a game changer. But by the time they go into France, they're up to you know tanks that have seventy five millimeter capability. Um, so a very you know everyone's realizing that. The, particularly in Canada, we're going to have to play a major game of catch-up. Um, and so that's sort of the status that we're in uh, as we move forward. Okay, and, so, uh, so so so, like you say, it was, it was a game of catch-up. And how much would, obviously officers watch other armies and they would have been watching the German army pretty close. Um, in between the wars, did they have an idea that Germany was gathering this tank force and had these tactics or... Was this kind of a well-kept secret? Uh... Everyone knew that they, they were working. The Germans were really developing their tank corps. Um, France was too. Uh, you know, France's performance in the 19, May 1940 actually came as quite a surprise to, to everyone because France in, had been in, perceived as being actually the leader in the tank um competition if you will have it uh with rearmament um you know the french were desperately trying to rearmor in from 1939 through to 19 the 1940s trying to build up their armies and get everything together and things looked pretty promising but of course they hinged they hinged everything on the Maginot line and then um the germans didn't play along with that. They came through, <laughs> came through the Ardennes again. You know that, right. that's always the problem. We we make a plan and then it's and well, so then, <laughs> well what are, these guys aren't cooperating. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt Mark here for one quick second. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Marathon of History magazine, which is available to read completely free at marathonofhistory.ca. As well, physical copies are available for purchase for five dollars, and we will ship them to you. 
So visit marathonofhistory.ca for a great magazine, Marathon of History, that truly lives up to our motto, Marathon of History, local history by local people. Thank you very much, and now back to Mark Sulke. And, and so, yeah, we knew, but, you know, nobody really knew what the German tank strategies were. Um, and nobody outside of Germany was, I think, as forward thinking as people like Guderian and, and, and that in Germany, who, you know, were really developing the, the Blitzkrieg uh, tactic. Uh, tanks, and in World War One, tanks were support to the infantry. And the doctrine had that had developed particularly in Canada was that the tank was not being they, they were sort of being perceived as cavalry, but not um, not fully. In a way, they were perceived more as a support to infantry, um, which in the end is sort of more or less what, how how we end up using tanks in in World War II, uh, partly due to geography and partly due to our own organization. Um, so yeah, there's the idea that, um, tanks could operate independently, uh, was not as, as conceived as the Germans had it. And the Germans were really relying on it because what they didn't do, um, in, in May and, and out of 1940 and really throughout most of World War II is they weren't as heavily mechanized as we would become. Um, their dependence on on horse-drawn wagons for the infantry was remains throughout the war. You know, that that's the main way they move supplies and move people and move equipment. Um, they create small mechanized um working on uh, the half tracks that you see in the films um they've got those as small units but it's not the main body of the army um so those could keep up with the tanks in theory and provide them with uh, some protection um but that was really you know so it's it's very much the germans have the idea that the tanks are the tip of a a big arrow that's going right. for it right. and behind that is this great mass of kind of slow moving infantry and we see that when um the german uh, armor gets down around dunkirk in in um in in may that they they kind of run out of steam um they actually run out of fuel uh right. to a large extent and because the fuel is being brought forward by horses and wagons and uh so you get that kind of problem happening so there's a there's an achilles heel that's there in the german um organization but it's not recognized for a long time that it you know everyone was stunned by the rapidity of the offensive into france belgium and holland um and the rep the speed at which the uh, French government collapses. So then we have Britain alone and all that kind of, you know, standing alone except for the uh, support of the Commonwealth countries and particularly Canada, who's providing the supply lifeline. And so what's this mean for tanks? Well, we, we don't have one. So if we start trying to develop one, um, that leads to manufacture of the Valentine, although that's a British initiative that uh, is just carried out in Canada to a large extent because we had 
factories that aren't being bombed. Um, and we moved to the Ram tank, which is the, the Canadian design uh, tank. Um, the Ram doesn't have a huge armor. Uh, the gun is originally a two-pounder, which is not much of a gun. Then they sort of start moving to a six-pounder. Um, the design changes a little bit, so it's not as vulnerable. The original design, they have a this weird um, evacuation escape hatch built into the side of the turret, which is you know, very vulnerable to any kind of anti-tank gun fire. So they, they, and they realize that and they fix that and <laughs> things get fixed. And, and, uh, it, the Ram was not a particularly bad tank, but it's by the time we get over to, um, Armored Corps goes mostly, they moved over to, uh, you, the UK in, in 1941, 42, um, the, uh, First Canadian Infantry Division and the other infantry divisions were sent earlier. Um, so they get over there. Uh, they're starting to train and work in, in that European landscape. And the RAM is getting, is showing problems. There's also, you know, do we want to have a, a completely different tank than the British have? Is this, does this make any kind of sense? Um, so you start to see the evolution of our movement towards adopting the uh, Churchill initially. So the Churchill is, comes, is, comes along. And the Churchill is a reasonably decent tank. It's going to stay in service right through World War II um, in, in the British uh, and some um, Commonwealth units. Um we abandoned it after Dieppe. It's just, we uh, both the uh, Churchill two and the Churchill three uh, were uh, equipped to um, the Calgary Regiment for the um, Dieppe raid. The Churchill two had a two pounder gun. Churchill three has a six pounder gun. It's in the improved. Um, so they're both there uh, at Dieppe, and. The Canadians had been starting to see some problems with the Churchills. Uh, it's a slow tank. It's it's quite it's not nimble at all. Um, it's got a good punch in in its six pounder gun, um, and the British used them very effectively through the course of the war. Not on all of their regiments. They also had uh, Shermans as well. But as we're getting ready to go to Sicily, we start the. Um, transition into the um, Sherman uh, tank. Uh, and that's what will end up being taken to, uh, to Sicily. This episode of the Marathon of History podcast is brought to you by Grey Roots Museum and Archives. Grey Roots, located five minutes south of Owen Sound, boasts a fantastic array of exhibits and special events this summer. Bring the whole family to check out Morriston Heritage Village, Grey Roots collection of historical buildings. History comes alive at Grey Roots Museum and Archives. Plan your visit today at greyroots.com. Okay. Well, that, that's interesting to me because uh, Stephanie actually, um, she wrote an article about a local uh, Canadian Forces training base that, uh, what year What year is it founded? I, I forget. Uh... Um, yeah, it was selected in July 1942. Okay. Um, and... Uh, Interestingly, and, and the question that still remains for me is that in the central area, there wasn't any 
approved training grounds that could really support the weight of tanks and armored fighting vehicles. And so that was one of the reasons that the Meaford base was chosen. But uh, what is the difference between an armored fighting vehicle and a tank? They're basically um, armored fighting vehicle encompasses a larger entity, I guess you could say, or category. Um, so a we didn't really have armored fighting vehicles besides the tanks. Oh, no, that's okay. not true. Not true. Um, because armored cars, for example, with wheels, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, are an armored fighting vehicle. Um, as you move forward into the 1950s, 60s, and onward into these, we, we have lots of different, you know, the... Um, the, the coyote, for example, um, was an armored fighting vehicle. It's not a tank. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not that de- difference of designation. They, they're, um, designed for light operations. Uh, they're lightly armored. They're nimble. Uh, they still weigh a heck of a lot. And that's why your training bases. <laughs> yeah. Um, all of these things are really heavy. That's, I'm imagining the uh, selection of, of that area. Is, is it quite, um, was it fairly open at that time? Yeah, um, they selected it because uh, there is a wide open plain in the center of the area that became the the training base that was very solidly packed. The soil was not great for farming, but perfectly suited to have tanks run across it. And then it also has considerable coastline along Georgian Bay that really made it an ideal place for training for the Normandy invasion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it had it had lots to recommend to it. Yeah, lots of potential. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and of course at the with the Normandy invasion, you know, we're getting into uh, amphibious tanks and, and things like that. So, you know, um I don't know if they actually developed a duplex drive tank in Canada for training purposes, or if that was just done in Normandy or um, mm-hmm. in, in the UK? Um, that's an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> um, Future all, podcast uh, episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like what was the preparations there? Yeah. Um, so, yes, that, that makes sense. And, um, and also it makes sense, too, because... You don't want to have to take everybody that you're training to um, operate tanks and have to shift them all the way out to the prairies um, or, you know, wherever to do the training. So they trained up mostly the Western Canadian people at bases in, in, um, in the prairies. So by the time we're ready to go to Sicily, uh, the doctrine... And the organization of armored regiments has really come together. And so the 1st Canadian Army Tank Battalion was what went to Sicily. They then are renamed the 1st Canadian Armored Brigade um, towards the end of that campaign. And uh, the organization, and this is the organization that independent squadrons of or uh, regiments of brigades, I should say, um, will have is that there are three regiments um, to each brigade. And within those, you have a brigade has three 
three squadrons in the, the in the form the form that's created for um, for the invasion of Sicily, uh, and that's the structure that the Canadians insist in Italy will keep. The um, what will happen when we go into Normandy is it, it, the regiments get expanded a little bit. They've got a little more teeth to them. But um, we, the uh, ones that went into Italy, that's what you're looking at is three squadrons. Um, and each of those has like three troops within them. And they have three tanks in each troop. And and that's the kind of way it's structured. Um, and that fits into the tactics that they were using because they um when when you could actually operate as a tank squadron is supposed to be operating which was rare in italy because of the ground just being so too rugged and and you know you don't have nice big areas to deploy um you would deploy your your troop in a in a three three tank um arrow and the uh troop commander would be at the tip of the thing and then the two other guys tanks on the outside and so it's it's kind of that's the format of how they operated and they even when they got the chance to do so that's the way the whole um squadron would be deployed with one troop in the lead one over here and one over there um doesn't happen very often in italy because of the grounds you know they just never got that kind of nice big wide open country um and so tanks, we see in Sicily uh, a realization that there's not a lot that tanks can do for the uh, for the operations. So they only deploy one one uh, regiment of tanks in support of First Canadian Infantry Division, and that's the Three Rivers Regiment. Um, and it serves primarily as close range artillery, you know, being brought up. Uh, they do lead a couple. Uh, pushes into um Garicum Alley. Um and so the occasionally they're out in the front, but not very often. Grandma Kelly. Grandma Kelly. That's the name <laughs> of the place. <laughs> these are uh these are all places we can probably check out on your tour in the fall, right? You're going back yes. to uh get a get a little plug in here for Liberation Tours while we're <laughs> Yeah, we we actually do a do a briefing on that fight right in the square at Grandma Kelly. It's it's it's, it's the first time the Canadians uh, slammed into the Germans in a big way. Okay, uh, in Sicily, because the um, you know the Germans didn't know where the invasion was going to come, so the Italians were put all all around the island at the logical places that you you could land, which was a all over the place <laughs> it would work um anywhere on that southwest southeast coast is going to work for uh, an invasion so they had italian concentrated down there and then the germans were up in the mountains um to the uh, west of etna the big volcano uh and with the idea that when the invasion came they would scurry out there and 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 meet the uh invasion on the beaches but it all happened so quickly they weren't able to do that so they right. actually started fighting uh you know they they then just sat back and waited <laughs> in our case for right. us to get there um on the british side they were able to interdict the uh british uh advance uh, from syracuse towards catania and hold them and then that's when first canadian infantry division is then given the job of outflanking that 
um, and freeing up, you know, drawing the Germans away so the British could push through. Okay. And that that's really the grand strategy that, uh, you know, is, is running everything with 1st Canadian Infantry Division operations in Operation Husky. Um, yeah, so we're using tanks primarily as a kind of mobile artillery. Um, and it works well, uh, plays a big role. Um, and then the other two regiments, the Calgary tanks and the um, Ontario tanks, uh, come in towards the end of the campaign and support British operations on the okay. other side. Um, and the last Canadian to die in Sicily was actually a, a Canadian tanker uh, with the Ontario Regiment, I believe. And so there's the structure. We've, we've kind of proven that we know how to operate tanks on a fairly limited scale, but we've done it. And, and you know, we've got the experience of Dieppe where the tanks, although confined to the beach and, and the Esplanade, had shown that they their their firepower plays a, a major part, particularly in the evacuation from the beach. It's it's the ability of the Calgary tankers to um, lay down covering fire that allows a lot of the uh, infantry to manage to get off the beach. So, you know, there's a definite appreciation for right. what tanks can do and an understanding of that. And when we move over to Italy's and the mainland Italy, same thing. We bring those regiments along. Um, so the armored regiments, armored brigades, um, their role is to support the infantry division. And we have another entity which arrives after the Battle of Ortona and in that winter um, before we go into the um, Leary Valley operations by Monte Cassino, uh, which is 5th Canadian Armored Division. And they're a different cat entirely than the armored brigades because armored brigades are to support infantry divisions. Fifth armored divisions, the tanks are the core of the thing, and they're perceived as the lead um, in that operation. They're not supporting, they're the lead player. And they have an infantry brigade attached to them in the, with, that's inherent in the division that's role their role is to support the tanks. So it's a different conception of how okay. how things are going to work. So um, just a just a question mm -hmm. uh, just before we move into Italy, Mark. Um, when the British are fighting, Eighth Army's fighting in Africa. They're the tanks in the desert. Um, mm -hmm. Did we have any observers with them? Or obviously, we were watching that closely. Now, would there have been a lot of lessons they could have taken from North Africa to Sicily, or was Sicily a, a whole new ball game as far as like? They they lessons that we learned in Africa actually turn out to be a handicap when we get into Italy and and that's and that was the handicap is is that um, large scale armored operations were possible in North Africa and and so the British and the Canadians and the Australians and everybody are studying this and learning from it and we did have uh, observers in in africa we also had uh, attached officers in the from the infantry armor artillery who got attached to different units in in africa with the idea of learning um right. 
and getting some combat experience because at this point we we don't have a lot so we're trying to get a, a small core of people who actually had been in the fighting uh had been in some fighting before we go into sicily in particular although at that point nobody's anticipating that canada is going to go to sicily that's a different story for later oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole political little um uh, diorama um <laughs> and so like for example i i was very good friends with um retired colonel strom galloway of the royal canadian regiment up the, and, and uh he uh was one of those officers who was sent to get experience and he served with the um irish regiment of, of um, in, in africa for i think about he was there for i think about five months Okay. Um, and so quite a few of these guys. And so they were getting experience and, and, um, when they get to Sicily, although they're not commanding, they're people within a regiment who actually know, have been in battle, um, and understand a bit more, you know, what to, the way the Germans fight, that sort of thing. So yeah, we, we had definitely some experience. Sicily is a totally different operation because it's just so incredibly rugged. Right. Um, it's not even there. There's no semblance of tank country <laughs> in Sicily. And we get over to Italy, and we find well, they ain't, ain't much different. Um, it's the same kind of rugged country. There's always another river coming out of the Apennines, cutting across your path that you have to, the engineers then have to bridge and you have to get across that. And the Germans have also learned that they can sit on the other side of that river <laughs> and make your life miserable until you force a crossing. Um, if so, only there was a book about the river battles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the whole, the whole, um, Italian campaign in a way is a river battle, although it gets even more intense when we get up in the north where the river battles book was placed. So there we have it, everybody. Mark Sulky on tanks. Now that is part one of a two part podcast series I'm doing. Uh, the interview with Mark was about an hour long, and we do try to keep our podcast uh, a little bit shorter, kind of within the time range of the average commute. So next week, please check out uh, Marathon of History podcast, as we will have part two of Mark Zolke on tanks in the Second World War. As usual, thank you very much for listening, and please check out marathonofhistory.ca. It's, uh, it's a great little website there we're always working on. We're always updating our web store. We have uh, custom model kits. We have HO N-Scale World War II armor. And, of course, Marathon of History magazine is there to read free. And if you would like to uh, you know, support Marathon of History, support the magazine, there are some uh, copies available uh, for purchase, and we will ship them to you. So, again, please subscribe to Marathon of History podcast, and uh, you'll get the second part here of Mark Zolke on Tanks next week. As always, I'm Matt Johnson, and thank you very much for listening.